tell you, I've been looking forward to this morning uh, to be able to baptize Leo, but then also looking forward to this morning and getting uh, to preach this sermon for a while. And what this is, is a bit of uh, an excursus, an excursus being a uh, detailed discussion about a particular point. And so an excursus on the book of Numbers and something that is uh, that stands continually as a main point of this whole book. And in fact, it's so assumed that it can be easily overlooked. It's Israel's worship. And more specifically, what we want to do is we want to see Christ in Israel's worship. And so at four different points this year, we will attempt to see Christ in Israel's worship by considering sacred space, sacred acts, sacred people, and then sacred time. So space, acts, people, and time. This morning, we'll consider something that has been repeated many times and is a major theme in these first seven chapters, and that is sacred space. It's a concept, sacred space, it's a bit foreign to Christians because we can worship the Lord any place, right? But earlier in, the, earlier in the service, we affirmed what we believe about worship, that neither prayer nor any other part of religious worship is now under the gospel, either tied unto or made more acceptable by any place in which it is performed or towards which it is directed. But God is to be worshiped everywhere in spirit and in truth. Jesus and the apostles were pretty explicit about the fact that worship is not tied to a particular place. Nor do we believe, as others do, that you must face towards a particular direction, towards a holy place to pray or worship. We believe that the infinite God, the omnipresent God who is everywhere, is to be worshipped everywhere. And yet we also know that the Old Testament prefigures, foreshadows, typifies gospel truths revealed in the New Testament. In fact, our New Testament reading from Hebrews 8 said, they serve at a sanctuary that is a copy and shadow of what is in heaven. This is why Moses was warned when he was about to build the tabernacle, see to it that you make everything according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. Sacred space is a patterned and a shadow of a worship reality still now and in eternity to come so that we might see it before we go to the word. Let's go before the author in prayer. Let's pray. Our God of revelation, all of scripture is your revealed word. It is complete and works together. No part contradicts another. And so those places where there seems to be confusion or disagreement we particularly need to take the time to allow for you to show us the truth that prevails. Bring it together for us in the person and work of Christ. May your Holy Spirit come now and bear witness to the proclamation of your word. And so it is we pray for the preacher in the pulpit, knowing that he is not worthy, but by your grace he is able. And so it is through Jesus Christ that we pray. Amen. We're going to look at several different scriptures along the way here, um, but starting again where we started before, that it isn't just the Hebrew title of the book, and it isn't just a word in the first verse of the book, it is the space where the whole book of the Bible takes place, Bemidbar, in the wilderness, in the desert. The very first verse of this book says, the Lord spoke to Moses in the tent of meeting 
in the desert of Sinai on the first day of the second month of the second year after the Israelites came out of Egypt. So the Israelites, the chosen people of God, were delivered, miraculously saved, out of Egypt, crossing the Red Sea, and here they are in the desert. We are miraculously saved, out of sin, by the red blood of Christ, and we are brought into the desert. We are heading towards the promised land, personally and globally, but clearly we aren't there yet. It's interesting that the Greek translation of that word midbar, midbar, is where we get our English word hermit. The midbar, the uh, desert, is an area that's not cultivated. Uh, Jen and I were recently watching the movie The Martian with Matt Damon. If you've seen it, you know that Matt Damon gets stranded on Mars, an area that is completely barren, and he has to figure out a way to cultivate, to grow crops in order to survive. Much of the Middle East is barren, desert area. Why is everyone fighting over it? In fact, when I went to Israel in 2004, there's a company that's working on drip irrigation, seeking to grow crops with minimal water in desert areas, attempting to develop new communities where people can live and trying to expand the areas in which people uh, can live. So instead of fighting over the plush areas, you can cultivate a new area and be fruitful and multiply in a place on earth that is once barren. Almost every square foot of land in Israel is special place for someone. They have history in that space. Loved ones lived there. Loved ones died there. And God revealed himself there. Exodus chapter 3 records when Moses was tending a flock on the far side of the desert and came to Horeb at the mountain of God. And most understand that Horeb is another word for Sinai. And so you know what happens next at that place. The angel of the Lord appeared to Moses in flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. God called to Moses from within the bush and said, Take off your sandals for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Two minutes earlier, that ground was just plain desert ground. But suddenly, it became holy ground. Why? Because the holy God is there. And then here's the question. Was it still holy ground two minutes after Moses had finished talking to God and the Lord had left that place? At a human level, we can imagine that Moses always treasured that space quite a bit. We have the same experience in our own lives. There are certain spaces that are extra special, perhaps, for us. Perhaps it's a a space where you first fell in love, where you won a victory. Perhaps a place where you suffered an injury or a loss. Perhaps it's a place where the Lord met you in a significant way. Many people consider Seneca Hills Camp or Pine Hills Camp sacred space where the Holy Spirit regenerated your heart and responded to the gospel and proclaimed faith in Christ. Our homes become a special place of safety and comfort. Your bedroom, the man cave, or the craft room. This past week, we witnessed another tragedy of a school shooting. 
School hallways, classrooms, and playgrounds are supposed to be safe places, and that was violated. A couple of weeks ago, the youth ended their winter retreat by going to the Flight 93 Memorial in Shanksville, Pennsylvania. And if you've been there, you felt it, a certain solemnity that comes just from being in that space. We experience the highs and lows of life in certain spaces. And sometimes the same space can be a place for both extremes, a space that once held negative memories suddenly has a positive experience and is redeemed. On the other hand, a space that once had positive memories has a negative experience and seems ruined. The Israelites find themselves in the desert. They were free, free from slavery, but in the desert. And yet God was with them in the desert. The desert had miraculously become sacred space. And we fully grasp the wonder of this when we consider that the desert of Sinai is a far cry, an extreme opposite to the lush garden of Eden where mankind began. The garden of Eden, the perfect place for mankind to live, a true paradise. But Eden's utopian nature was not because of its physical benefits, but because of the perfect relationship between God and his creation the relationship of every part of creation with itself. The Lord walked with Adam and Eve in the garden. And Adam and Eve were completely vulnerable with one another. Work and marriage was pure joy all the time. There were no special places because every place was holy. The whole garden was God's sanctuary until the disobedience of Adam and Eve, succumbing to the temptation to be autonomous, not needing God. You can decide for yourselves. That was the lie, and it is still the lie today. The result was a shattering of Adam and Eve's relationship even with each other. No longer could they be vulnerable because now they felt vulnerable. They felt shame. They felt inadequacy. At this moment, alienation settles into human relationships. And this account explains why we can feel loneliness even in the closest of relationships. But the alienation of Adam and Eve pales in comparison to the effect on the relationship between God and humankind. Adam and Eve are removed from the Garden of Eden. That is to say that Adam and Eve no longer lived in a sacred space. They no longer lived where every place was holy, where they could easily meet with God everywhere. We long for a return to Eden's perfection, God's presence everywhere. And yet we say God is present everywhere. He always has been, always will be. He is infinite and eternal. But following the fall and expulsion of Eden, easy access to presence of God was lost. Sin had entered in, and God hates sin. Therefore, God had to provide sacred space and a means by which sinful man and the holy God could meet together. And so the first sacred space that God provided following the fall was the altar. Genesis 8 is the first express mention of the altar, but 
Uh, Genesis 4 and the activities of Cain and Abel suggest that they had an altar where they brought their sacrifices as well. And last Sunday in chapter 7 of the book of Numbers, we see um, where the 12 gifts are presented and the anointed altar there, verse 1 of chapter 7. When Moses finished setting up the tabernacle, he anointed it and consecrated it in all its furnishings. He also anointed and consecrated the altar and all its utensils. And then down in verse 10, when the altar was anointed, the leaders brought their offerings for its dedication and presented them before the altar. The altar is the place for sacrifice. The Hebrew word for altar, mitzbeach, comes from the Hebrew or from the verb root meaning sacrifice. In order for sinful man to come into the presence of the holy God, a sacrifice had to be made. Because in the sacrifice, the person placed their hand on the animal to be sacrificed to indicate that what would happen to the sacrifice is what was deserved to the one who presented it. Exodus chapter 20 is the Lord's specific direction regarding the building of an altar. An altar of earth you shall make for me and sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and peace offerings, your sheep and your oxen. In every place where I cause my name to be remembered, I will come to you and bless you. If you make me an altar of stone, you shall not build it of hewn stones, for if you wield your tool on it, you profane it, and you shall not go up by steps to my altar that your nakedness be not exposed on it. In this, what we see is that the altar was to be simple, made of hewn stones, that is, uncut stone. The altar was to be plain and simple not ornate like the pagan altars. And further, it was not to be at the top of steps exposing someone's nakedness to those below. So there's not even a hint of the sexual rituals of the Canaanite fertility religions. The altar was a holy place, a set-apart place, because it was the place where God met with his people. The Old Testament sacrifices on the altar foreshadow and anticipate and prefigure the once-for-all sacrifice of Christ on the cross. So whenever we read altar, we think cross of Christ. And just as the altar was plain and simple, so the cross of Christ was plain and simple. The gospel is plain and simple. The worship of God is plain and simple. Worship should not draw attention to itself. Worship is not entertainment. This is not a stage for performers. You are not an audience. Worship is for an audience of one, the Lord God. The altar is not on display. The sacrifice is the focus. The sacrifice is the reason we meet with God, the reason we're able to meet with God. In Numbers chapter 7, we read that Moses anointed the altar, and we talked about this last week, that the Hebrew word for anointed is Messiah, in Greek, Christ. Jesus, the Messiah, the Christ, the anointed one. So Moses messiah the altar. We worship God by the sacrifice of Christ. And no element of worship should focus on the worship itself or even on the worshiper, but centers on the lamb who was slain and focuses on the God who meets with us because of that atoning sacrifice. And so from the anointed altar, we go to 
the tabernacle that housed the altar at this point in time. Because as we talk about sacred space, it still sounds um, a little strange because God is omnipresent. He's everywhere. But scripture records God's special presence in certain places at certain times and where it was that people could access and meet with God. So with the building of the tabernacle, we move from God's occasional appearance to God's ongoing presence among the people. God gives specific direction for the building of the tabernacle in the book of Exodus. It's the last part of the book of Exodus that reads like blueprints and gets a little boring at times. The book of Numbers, God gives specific directions for the moving of the tabernacles. And we went through that in the earlier chapters and saw the various groupings of Levites that had uh, certain directions of what parts they were supposed to carry. The book of Exodus concludes with the glory cloud, the Lord's presence that fills the tabernacle while it was standing. And then it's the same glory cloud that leads them forward when they are on the move. Numbers chapter 7 ends with the description of Moses hearing the Lord speak audibly between the two cherubim that were above the atonement cover, the mercy seat of the Ark of the Testimony. And so following these specific directions of the Lord is imperative to standing in the special presence of the Lord. Whenever the people of God attempt to invent ways of worshiping God, the Lord becomes angry and removes his presence from among his people. The tabernacle, also called the tent of meeting, was exactly that. It was a tent. It was a fairly elaborate tent, but a tent nonetheless because the whole thing had to be mobile. And I don't know about you, but every time I think about this, uh, the mobility of the tent of meeting, I'm reminded of my all-time favorite TV show, MASH. Right? The Mobile Army Surgical Hospital. Not the whole TV series, but the whole sense of that mass unit, that everything was built in tents because they needed to be ready to bug out at a moment's notice to pack everything up and move the hospital and all their things if the enemy approached. Here we have the mass tent of meeting that needs to be ready to be taken down, moved, and then set back up as they move from one end of the desert to the other, heading towards the promised land. Eventually, when they end up in the promised land, the mobile tabernacle becomes the permanent temple that's built by Solomon. And that permanent structure was to represent the conclusion of the conquest of the promised land, the Philistines being the last enemy to be conquered by David. And so the establishment of that permanent temple symbolized the establishment of the land and the permanent establishment of David's throne, ultimately occupied by Christ himself as King Jesus. So all that is with that tabernacle. But now what we want to do is we want to go inside the tabernacle. The tabernacle has four parts. The central part of the tabernacle was the Holy of Holies, where the Ark of the Covenant sat, and the presence of the Lord in the glory cloud that was above that mercy seat, the atonement cover. Outside of the Holy of Holies was what was called the holy place. And beyond that was the courtyard where the people gathered and where the altar sat. And then beyond that is the Israelite encampments with the tribes camped around the tabernacle facing it. And outside, a sort of fifth area, was the area outside the camp. 
Now, the materials that were used for the tabernacle were more costly and precious the closer you entered into God's presence. From the bronze altar to silver to gold, and then ultimately to fine gold in the Holy of Holies. From various skins to linen, and then to fine linen. There was also decreasing levels of accessibility. Outside the camp was the world at large and the ritually unclean. Anyone could be outside the camp. Inside the camp was only for the Israelites, those who were part of a particular tribe, clan, and family. Inside the courtyard was only for those who were coming with a sacrifice to offer. And the Levites stood guard to make sure that no one came any closer so that God's wrath did not fall on the whole nation. Inside the holy place was only for priests and Levites to perform particular duties. And inside the holy of holies was a place reserved only for Moses while he was alive and for the high priest once a year to go in on the day of atonement. The entire picture, though, of the tabernacle was to be one of heaven on earth, God's home on earth dwelling among his people by his special presence. And during the time of the book of Numbers, the tabernacle and the people of God were on the move. They still had enemies all around them. And the Lord drove off the enemies from the mercy seat, from the atonement cover above above the ark. Whenever the Israelites traveled, the ark went out in front. It was the very first thing that led the camp as they marched along. And it was covered, but covered with different colored linens than everything else so that people could always see where the ark was. The Lord was out in front, leading the way and scattering enemies. We're going to read that about that a bit more in a couple of chapters. But at the onset of each day's march, Moses would proclaim, Arise, O Lord, and let your enemies be scattered. Let them flee before you. And next week in chapter 8, we're going to go inside the tabernacle some more as we look at the lamps and lampstands and consider some of the other furnishings, all of which point to specific aspects of God's special presence. But I want to focus this into the application of how does this affect our worship right now and in the future? Well, first what we see is that Jesus himself is our sacred space. John 1 14 says, the word became flesh and did what? Tabernacled among us, dwelt among us. And Jesus himself said, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. Jesus referring to himself that he would be raised on the third day because Jesus himself becomes the new temple. And in John 4, when Jesus speaks to the Samaritan woman, he says, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. Your worship, the worship that you have, uh, you worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. And so with the coming of Christ, 
and the coming of the Holy Spirit, there is an expansion that worship no longer happens in only the sacred space of the temple, but happens wherever Jesus reigns, because Jesus is our sacred space, and Jesus reigns in believers. The Holy Spirit creates sacred space in us. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? The Holy Spirit takes up residence within us so that God dwells in believers. There are other passages, 2 Corinthians 6 and 1 Corinthians 6, that speaks of our bodies as temples of the Holy Spirit and the practical implications for how we ought to live our lives. But we see that we are not only temples personally, but we are also temples corporately. Paul wrote to the Ephesian church, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. And so personally, the Holy Spirit dwells in believers, but he brings believers together so that corporately we become the temple. We become a dwelling place for God to be in our midst as we gather to worship him. So that the church gathered is to be heaven on earth and a glimpse of what is to come. When individual temples gather together, we become the corporate temple. As we affirmed earlier in the service, God is to be worshiped everywhere in spirit and truth, as in private families daily and in secret, each one by himself, so more solemnly in the public assemblies. We set aside space to do this, the sanctuary that this might have a feel of sacred space and to use this space for worship. That when we come, we don't confuse this for anything else, but we know this to be a place where we come to meet with God and that we're able to meet with God because of Jesus Christ and a Christ-centered worship, a God-focused worship says that the spirit that dwells in each of us is the God that we seek to meet as we meet together as God's church. We ultimately look forward to the day in which the new heavens and the new earth come. What's announced in Revelation, which John says, I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. We are looking forward to the day in which the consummation of Christ's kingdom uh, is real and a return back to Eden where everything is sacred All space is sacred, and God is fully accessible in all places. For now, where the church gathers becomes sacred space, where believers gather to focus on God, to center on Christ, by whom we meet with God, becomes sacred space. May we indeed become that sacred space as we worship our Lord. And indeed, may that truth set us free. Amen.